Well, good morning, New Life Church, and to all those that have logged on from different parts of the world. We're grateful that you could join us today as we study God's Word together. And we continue in our sermon in the Gospel of Luke, the mission of Jesus in our series. And when we started these live stream services nine weeks ago, I told you in the beginning I was tempted to start a, a mini-series of messages dealing with this pandemic, and I'm grateful that the Lord led me to continue teaching verse by verse through the, the Gospel of Luke. And we as a church have seen that the Word of God is sufficient and it is profitable for us in, in every way, um, in every area of our lives. Uh, the Gospel of Luke has served us well. And I hope and pray that you have grown in your love and appreciation and confidence for the Word of God because, because of this preaching. And today... Again, our passage in, the script, in these scriptures will help us deal directly with this pandemic and teach us how we can rejoice in the midst of great suffering. Now, today we pick up our passage in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, in which Jesus is gathering in um, his larger circle of disciples and from them choosing 12 who are going to be in his, in his inner circle. And the disciples, of course, are the ones who are going to become these apostles and the ones who he most closely associates with, the ones he most cl closely um, teaches and spends time with. Um, so this is the beginning of, of Luke's record for us. And um, the second half of the message, the second half of the passage today, we're going to see the beginning of the, the Sermon on the Mount. And I believe that Luke is connecting the calling of the disciples to the Sermon on the Mount, and we will see how that he will be doing this, preparing his disciples for what lies ahead, preparing them. So if you would read with me uh, from Luke chapter 6, we're going to read from verse 12 to verse 23. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Verse 17. And he came down with them, and stood on a level place with the great crowd of his disciples, and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowds sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Well, we live in strange times, don't we? I know that you can't believe everything you hear from the media, 
But one of the loudest messages at the moment that we hear from different media so sources is that there are people out there who don't believe that the coronavirus pandemic is actually real. They say that this is just one big conspiracy theory and they refuse to follow any social distancing norms. They refuse to, to wear gloves. They refuse to wear a mask. They refuse to, to wash their hands. And they just choose to live in denial, pretending that nothing is wrong. And they are very unhappy people, very angry at their governments. And on top of their anger, they try to do everything in their power to attack and to slander those who don't have the same views as them. And these people who choose to live by th this uh, way have a certain ideology and a, a certain philosophy that influences their behavior and influences their decisions in a very aggressive and a, and a very angry way. And as Christians, we, we are well aware that we live in a, in a broken world. We are well aware that our world has been corrupted and that it is not as it should be. And the world is filled with sadness. It is filled with sorrow. It is groaning as it awaits its redemption. And sin has infected and it has affected every area of our lives, even in this world. And if we are honest, we cannot pretend that everything is okay and that bad things just aren't there because it's, that's not true. What we need is a theology that will support us. What we need is a theology that will help us to rejoice in the middle of this great sorrow, in the middle of this pain, in the middle of these trying times, especially during these times. And I think that is precisely what Jesus is supplying in the very first part of this Sermon on the Mount to his disciples and to us today as well. Now, in other Gospels, in the Gospel of Matthew, he spends three chapters recording for us the, the Sermon on the Mount. Luke's version is a, is a little shorter, but he'll go on later on dispersing some of the other material elsewhere, which we'll look at. Um, but the bit that we're going to read today and meditate upon this morning is directly connected. Jesus calling his disciples, but also preparing his disciples with this Sermon on the Mount. Let me explain a little bit further. When Jesus calls his disciples together and then selects the 12 that are going to be the apostles, his aim is to explain to them why he is calling them and what he is calling them to do and what kind of life he is calling them to. Really, it's an act of, of full disclosure. He's being very honest with them up front. He is concerned that they will understand what they're getting themselves into. He's concerned also that they understand what true happiness consists of, that they will understand how to hang on to that true, lasting joy, no matter what the circumstances they, they will face in the future. And that, that life of true happiness, of course, differs from the world's version of true happiness. And we'll look at that a little bit more this morning. But he wants to prepare them. That's basically what he's doing here. He's trying to prepare his disciples 
for the battle that they are about to go into in their lives, in their ministry. Remember, this is an act of full disclosure, and it's an act of kindness. It's an act of preparation. He's not painting for them a, a rosy picture of, of what a disciple of his is going to be like. He doesn't promise them that everything's going to be happy, 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 without any trials, without any suffering. He is very honest with them. But at the same time, he warns them bluntly. And he's telling them that he wants them to be able always, in every circumstance, to be able to rejoice. So from verse 12 to 16, we see Jesus calling his 12 disciples after praying to God his Father all night long. And my first point this morning is in verse 12 to 16, the master choosing the 12. But before we look at these 12 names mentioned, I want you to notice that at the very beginning of the disciples' ministry, Jesus is deeply concerned that his people, his disciples, his followers would know true happiness. And look at verse 12, oh sorry, verse 20. He starts, the verse 20 starts with, blessed are you. Verse 21 starts with, blessed are you. Verse 22 starts with, blessed are you. And verse 23 starts with, rejoice. So remember, 11 of these men end up joyfully suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ. And 10 of these men end up joyfully dying for their faith in Jesus. So let me introduce you to these men as we see them in the scriptures this morning. In verse 14, we are introduced to Simon. He is mentioned. Simon is mentioned, whom he also named Peter. So among many other saints, the blessed apostle Peter was condemned to death and he was crucified upside down at his own request because he was, according to him, unworthy to be crucified after the same form and manner as the Lord was. So that's Simon. We also see in verse 14, Andrew, his brother. Um, he preached the gospel to many um, Asiatic nations, but on his arrival at Edessa, he was taken and he was crucified on a cross as well. But the two ends of, of the crosses, which were fixed on diagonally in the ground. And then we have James in verse 14 as well. He is the elder brother of John. And he is a relative of our Lord. And he was beheaded by Agrippa. And James was the first apostolic martyr. He cheerfully and purposefully received that cup, which he told our Savior he was ready to drink. And then in verse 14, we have John, the beloved disciple. Um, he was the brother to James the Great. Remember, he founded the, the churches of Smyrna, Pergamos, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and Thyatira. And from Ephesus, he was ordered to be sent to Rome, where it is affirmed that he was, he was cast into a cauldron of, of boiling oil. And he escaped by a miracle without injury. So he was the only apostle who escaped a violent death and um, went on to die of an old age. And then in verse 14, we have Philip. Philip was born at Bethsaida in Galilee and was the first called by the name of disciple, disciple of Jesus. 
and he labored diligently in, in Upper Asia, and he suffered martyrdom in, in Phrygia. He was, he was scourged, he was thrown into prison, and afterwards crucified in, in AD 54. And then in verse 14, we have Bartholomew. Um, we see there, he, he preached in several countries, and one tradition has it that Bartholomew, he was executed in Armenia. And according to some popular biographies, uh, the apostle, he was skinned alive, and he was beheaded. Then in verse 15, we have Matthew. Uh, he was Levi the tax collector, which we had been learning about earlier on in the Gospel of Luke. He was born in Nazareth, and he wrote his gospel in Hebrew, which was afterwards translated into Greek by, by James. He ministered in, in Parthia and Ethiopia. While in Ethiopia, he was stabbed to death by a spear in the, in the city of Nadaba in, in AD 60. I hope you're feeling encouraged. Then in verse 15, we have Thomas. Thomas called Didymus. He preached the gospel in Parthia and in India. And the pagan priests in India ordered his execution when he was pierced through with the spears of four different soldiers. Verse 15, we have James, the son of Alphaeus. This James is the half-brother of Jesus. And he was elected to the oversight of the churches of Jerusalem. And he was the author of the epistles ascribed to James in the, in the Bible. At the age of 94, he was beaten and stoned by the Jews and finally had his head crushed with a, with a fuller's club. And then we have Simon called, uh, called Zealots. He preached the gospel in uh, Mauritania, Africa, and even in Britain, in which later country he was crucified in AD 74. Then you have Judas, the brother of James, in verse 16. Um, he was commonly called Thaddeus, and he was crucified at Edessa in AD 72. So you may be thinking right now, wow, Pastor Gareth, that is pretty depressing. Pretty depressing. How is that joyful? How is that biography of those famous people going to help me to be happy? And how is that sad news going to help me to be rejoicing? Well, the answer to that question, obviously, is how we define happiness. Because all of these men mentioned did their suffering joyfully. How do we define suffering? Now, the kind of happiness that Jesus is talking about is, is very different to the kind of happiness that the world talks about. The joy that Jesus talks about comes from a place that is, that is different from in the world thinks of joy and where they get their joy from. Remember what I said earlier. These disciples ended up joyfully suffering and joyfully dying for their faith in Jesus. And Jesus taught these men and is teaching them and is teaching us today to be prepared for the battle so we can rejoice when these tough times come, even to the very end. He wants us to know that the battle is coming. And he wants us to be prepared for it. And what spiritual battles have you been facing this time of isolation? Have you been prepared for these battles? Have you experienced this joy? Have you experienced this deep satisfaction that Jesus is talking about here in this passage?
But let's look at the second point this morning. We see in verse 17 to verse 19, the miraculous ministry of Jesus. Well, we see in these verses that Jesus was very popular with uh, people. And first, Luke mentions the large number of people who were there, even in such a remote place. And secondly, he mentions the great distance from which the, the people were coming. So let's, let's look at verse 17. Let's read verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So while Jesus was especially popular with the people, of course this made him very unpopular with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees resented Jesus for being the, the people's favorite. The other authors of the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, they tell us that um, they tell us the reason for the hostility of these Pharisees. They tell us that the Pharisees were in fact jealous of Jesus. They were jealous of Jesus. Of course, this popularity of our Lord is, an, is a very important element in the setting of the sermon. It indicates to us, of course, the, the great courage of our Lord in delivering this very truthful message. Um, we know Jesus' Jesus' popularity was a, was a fragile thing. As we will see later on in the course of events, um, the people turned on him. So this was a very fragile state. And Jesus did not choose to speak about non-controversial matters. Jesus chose to, to keep the message honest and real. And of course, he wasn't concerned about the favor of the people. He was concerned that he was honoring God and he was truthful to the, the word of God. So when you stop to think about what our Lord is saying in the sermon, it's obviously virtually the opposite of what other people teach and what other people believe. So many people, even today, Jesus spoke about poverty. He spoke about hunger. He spoke about persecution as blessed. And he spoke about wealth as that of bringing a curse. He taught people to love their enemies, taught people not to retaliate. He taught that one should give to those in need, knowing that you'll never be repaid. And these are not very popular teachings. Even today, the health, the wealth, and the prosperity teachers of our time, they know this. Jesus, in spite of his great popularity, spoke the truth, and he taught what people needed to hear, not just what they, they wanted to hear. Luke chapter 6, verse 18 and 19 tells us that there were great multitudes of people. It says they came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. What strikes me here? about these verses in verse 18 and 19 is the amount of desperate, needy, and hurting people that are looking for healing, that are looking for healing. Wherever you go and whomever you encounter in this world, you can know that that person has great needs because the entire human race is, is under the curse of sin and death. 
And our world is filled with sadness. Our world is cursed by sin. It is groaning and it is awaiting its redemption. We live in a world that seeks to find meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction in all kinds of ways, in all the wrong ways. And yet people find only emptiness in following their, their various pursuits. The brother of John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., he said this, even back when he was alive. Everybody basically has an empty hole inside of them that they try to fill with money, drugs, alcohol, power, and none of the material stuff works. It didn't work back then, and it doesn't work even now. And you would think that people living now in the 21st century would have learned how to deal with the, the emptiness of life, but they have not. People in Jesus' day found life just as empty as people do today. They struggle to find meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction in all kinds of, of areas of their lives. And that is why they needed the gospel. And it's the same reason today, especially today, especially in these unique times. There are great multitudes of people outside of us, close to us, near us, desperately needy, desperately hurting, and looking for answers, looking for healing that they will find only in the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, let me bring you to the main point of this passage as we, as we bring this together this morning. My third point, the nature of true happiness. The nature of true happiness. Up until now, Luke has carefully explained in detail the setting of the Sermon on the Mount. And now the curtain is about to be raised as the main point of this passage is played out. We see in verse 20 to verse 23, Jesus tells these disciples that he has called and that he has chosen about what the true nature of holiness really is and the true nature of happiness, how it is connected. And isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting? Think about this for a moment. Here he is at the beginning of his ministry. But remember what he's going to say at the end of his ministry to his disciples in John chapter 15. He says to them, I came so that your joy might be complete. Notice, their joy. What I tell you, I have told you, so that even if the world is falling down around your ears, you can have joy. This was an important message. And here Jesus starts this very important lesson right here. So that when the world was falling around and falling down around the disciples, they would know what true joy was. That is why they were willing and ready to lay down their lives for their Savior. So from the beginning to the end of Jesus' ministry, he is very concerned for his people, for his disciples, for his followers, that they would know what true joy was, that they would know what true happiness was, that they would know what everlasting and deep satisfaction was. He doesn't want his people to be caught off guard, especially about what they're going to be facing soon. He wants him to be prepared for the fight. 
He wants him to be built up for the, the battle. He wants him to be able to rejoice. So look at what he says in verse 20. Notice here, he looks right into their eyes. And I think he's looking especially into the eyes of the twelve. Look at verse 20. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples. Even though Jesus was preaching to the multitudes, he wanted everyone to hear and understand and respond in faith to what he was saying. Look what he says. He especially wants his disciples to understand this. So he looks into their eyes. And he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Now try and imagine how ironic and how shocking these words must have been the first time the disciples heard them. Now you and I have probably, if you're a Christian, have probably heard these words many times, or you've probably read them many times. Um, and they probably don't have much, much shock value to us anymore. But try and imagine how shocking these words must have been the first time the disciples heard these words. Hear what Jesus is saying. Look at those words again. Blessed are you when you do it, when you do it poor. Blessed are you when you, when you feel the, the pangs of hunger like your, like your brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, like in Syria. Blessed are you when, when you have experienced sorrow so deep that all you can do is weep and that you can't stop. And on top of that heap of blessing, let me give you one more. Blessed are you when people hate your guts, when people exclude you, when people think you're a fool and spurn your name and Try to ruin your reputation because you love me. You see what Jesus is doing? He is preparing his disciples for the battle ahead. Before you go applying these words to yourselves, understand that what Jesus was saying, especially to his 12, was absolutely what they were going to face. They were going to face poverty for him. They were going to face hunger for him. They were going to face bitter weeping for him, hatred for him, rejection for him, reviling, and even death for him. And he was telling them what they were going to face. So the Lord may have different plans, or he may have similar plans for us. But for all Christians, we are called to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Now, a couple of things immediately, I'm sure, are coming into your mind at the moment. This is happiness? I hope, you, I hope you're laughing. I'm imagining you laughing. Thank you for laughing. Well, yes, it seems ridiculous, doesn't it? What do you mean that this is, that this is happiness? And the second question that I hope is popping into your mind is where does this happiness come from? Where does this happiness come from? Because I don't think it's coming from the poverty. Poverty doesn't bring you happiness. 
Hunger doesn't bring you happiness. Now, weeping doesn't bring you happiness. Hatred doesn't bring you happiness. Rejection and even death doesn't bring you happiness. So where is it coming from? We have to ask these questions, folks. And we have to give an answer to them as well. And the only answer to those questions is in our theology. It's how we understand God. And how we understand the Scriptures. These answers come from Jesus. They come from the Scriptures. And it's a question that the disciples had to ask themselves. And they had to answer. It's a question that, that I have to ask. And a question that you have to ask. Because Jesus is calling us to rejoice in these situations. He's calling us to know deep, true, real, lasting happiness when the world around us is falling apart. Look at verse 23. We come to a conclusion here. Jesus says, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Notice that this is a command. It is not a suggestion. The Lord is commanding us to rejoice in such circumstances. Such circumstances. This is a heavy demand. This is a heavy demand upon his, his disciples back then and even upon His disciples now, you and me. But it's a demand that many have responded to in the Scriptures. We see Paul and Silas responding well to this demand in Acts chapter 16. We read in verse 23 to verse 25. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the, in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. Imagine that. They're singing hymns after all of this terrible treatment to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. They were listening to their joy. Where did they get that happiness from? Well, let's apply this this morning. Let me ask you, what happens when your greatest treasure is taken away? You see what Jesus is doing to the disciples now? He's asking, what is your greatest treasure? And how do you find your happiness? And how do you keep that happiness when everything else is taken away? He's preparing his disciples to minister in this, in this fallen world that we are all part of. And my friends, that is the battle that we all share if we are followers, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is Jesus your greatest treasure? Is Jesus your greatest treasure? He's really building them for the battle that they're about to enter. They're going to lose their families. They're going to lose their children. They're going to lose all their worldly possessions. They're going to lose all their, their good reputations and all their esteem in their community. They're going to lose their jobs. They're going to be rejected by their friends and even their family and even their nation. And in the end, they're even going to suffer and die. And we know that for a fact. And He's preparing them to rejoice even in that. If 
Folks, that's what we should be doing every day we come together on the Lord's Day. We spoke about that last week. Preparing ourselves for that day when we will face that, this type of persecution. When we will face that type of suffering. And that's the life we live here in this fallen world. I read a wonderful article this week that, that I thought I needed to share with you just to help you understand what the Lord is preparing us for. This article was on the Gospel Coalition site. It was written by Timothy Paul Jones. He's a, he's a Christian author and he's a pastor in uh, Kentucky in the USA. And he started his article with these words. I'm going to read much of this for you. I'm having a really hard time breathing. That's how it starts. Those are words from his, his daughter. And he goes on to say, One day earlier, our oldest daughter had stayed home from work because of a low-grade fever. By the time Hannah called us from her apartment, the fever had refused to recede and she was struggling to breathe. Drive yourself to the emergency room, my wife told her, and see what they say. They said pneumonia, but it quickly became clear they were treating Hannah for something worse and her condition wasn't improving. Two days after the hospital admitted Hannah, a physician called to let us know that her lungs weren't delivering sufficient oxygen to her body. If the medical team didn't place her on a ventilator before the end of the day, cardiac arrest seemed the most likely outcome. But based on the condition of her lungs, the doctor had concluded that the cause was COVID-19. When I asked a nurse if my wife and I could visit Hannah in their intensive care unit, the nurse replied, you don't want us to call you to visit. If we ask you to come see her, it's because the doctor doesn't think she's going to make it to the, the next day. Here's a slide that was on the, was part of the, the article. Would you bring up the slide of, of Hannah on the, the ventilator? So here she is, a 23-year-old on a ventilator the father goes on to say, was nothing we could have anticipated 17 years ago when God worked through the foster care system to place Hannah in our lives. The first couple days on the ventilator, Hannah was sufficiently uh, coherent to video conference through her phone, even though she couldn't speak. But then it became necessary for the medical team to sedate her, and the distance between us grew silent and dim. The haunting terror of the coronavirus pandemic isn't limited to the possible loss of our own life or the life of someone we love. The terror is entangled with the chilling prospect of not being present with our loved ones in their times of pain. This yearning to be with those we love when they suffer isn't convenient and it isn't efficient, but it is inescapable. Even on our best days, we need community. On our worst days, we need it even more. The father goes on to say, see how his theology is helping him here. Listen to his words here. I don't know what God was doing in allowing my daughter to contract COVID-19. Nor do I claim to understand what God is doing around the globe as millions of others face the same disease. I do know this. Nothing is outside our Heavenly Father's control. And we can trust His hand even when we cannot see his face. This, of course, this is, of course, true in every moment of our lives. 
And yet it's easy to embrace the delusion that we turn the rudder of our own lives when we're surrounded by those who love us and our lives seem to be proceeding generally according to our plans. But when we face circumstances that none of our efforts can change, such delusions are stripped away. We're left to trust in the mercies of God who may have a plan quite different from ours. Sounds pretty much like the disciples' theology, doesn't it? But that's not the end of the story. He goes on to say, And so we prayed for Hannah's healing. And such prayers are good and right. And many nights as Hannah lay in the hospital, I repeated the words that Jairus, the synagogue leader, spoke to Jesus. My little daughter is dying. Please come and lay your hands on her. But I also prayed these prayers in Jesus' name. These words are not a mere tagline that we add to upgrade our petitions to, to first class or to increase the likelihood that God will do exactly what we ask. To pray in the name of Jesus is to surrender our request to a plan that is greater than our own. Biblical theology. Can you, can you hear this here, folks? When I pray in Jesus' name, I'm asking God to do whatever will point most clearly to His glory, to His majesty, even if that answer brings suffering and pain. He goes on to say, healing doesn't always take place in this life. Some healings will only happen in the life to come. But we don't trust in the healing itself. We trust in the healer. He goes on to say, the, extreme, the, the, the supreme expression of this pattern can be heard in the words of our dying Christ. Father, into, into your hands I commit my spirit. We see that in Luke 23. And this prayer didn't save him from death. It didn't save Jesus from um, suffering. And the author goes on to say, And neither will such trust prevent or loss in my life or yours. But this prayer recognizes that we serve a God who has a plan that reaches beyond our pain. And the story we inhabit now is not the only story. This is a story yet to come. An unending story in which, in C.S. Lewis' words, Every chapter is better than the one before. Thankfully, the Lord answered their prayer according to their desire. And here's a picture of Hannah being wheeled out of the hospital in a, in a wheelchair. And after three long weeks in the hospital and 11 days on a ventilator, Hannah came home. The physicians didn't expect this outcome during her first few days in intensive care. The Father says, I'm thankful beyond words for the ways God worked through medical interventions to save her life. But I also know this. God is no less good when His healing happens in the next life than He is when healing happens in this one. Even when we cannot glimpse the contours of our Father's plan, He is still good. We can trust His hand even in those moments when we cannot see His face. What encouraging words. Words that can face difficult times. Words that are filled with joy. Not because Hannah was, was healed, but because God was good and they knew His character and they trusted Him. Even in the bad times, even if Hannah didn't get healed. They knew that nothing could separate them from God's love. And that's the battle we're facing this moment. Isn't it, folks? 
That's the battle I'm sure you've been experiencing over the last nine weeks. God is calling us to this battle, not to trust in our treasures, not to trust in the temporary things of this world that will fade away and that moth and dust can corrupt. He's telling us to put our trust and our treasure in Him. So will we trust God in this battle? Will we treasure Jesus more than anything? This is the battle that we are called to. The battle will come. And when it comes, we need to ask ourselves these questions. What are we treasuring? Who do we love? What, what am I built for? What is my purpose? And where can I find this joy? Where can I find this everlasting happiness? And Jesus is saying this this morning, folks. He's saying this to us. He's saying this to his disciples. When you get to that point that anything, that any normal person values in this world has been taken away from you, and you still find yourself rejoicing in me, then you will know you have found your true treasure. Because I can't be taken away from you. Because no one can take me away from you. The sad reality is, folks, for now everyone suffers. And everyone dies. But contrary to other religions, the hope the Bible gives us is not escape from the suffering or deliverance from this sorrow, but rather victory over our suffering, victory through our suffering. Look at Romans chapter 8 as we conclude this morning. Romans 8 verse 35 tells us, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's a question. And here's the answers. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Look at verse 37. Well, obviously the answer is nobody and nothing. Verse 37 says, In all these things, we Christians are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. The cross of Christ calls us to suffer and secures our triumph. Suffering is certain. But salvation is also certain, folks. Do you see what Jesus is doing in these Beatitudes? He's building us up for the, the battle to come. Jesus is saying to you today, through his word, trust God, treasure me, know true eternal joy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Lord, we don't deserve your love, but we are so grateful, Lord, that while we were still sinners, you came down to this earth, sent your Son to die for us, who entered this corrupt world, lived in this broken environment, that he would give his life as a ransom for our sins, that he would pay the price that we should have. He lived that perfect death and died that perfect death for us. Lord, we are so grateful this morning for your grace. Father, we pray that we would treasure this more than anything. Forgive us where we have failed. Forgive us where we have not done this. Forgive us for all these idols that we have treasured in our hearts rather than you. And we repent of them today, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would prepare us as we continue this wonderful study in this gospel. 
Prepare our hearts. May the Spirit continue to teach us even this week as we meditate on your word. Teach us how to apply these truths. That when we face these circumstances around us, Lord, we will not crumble, but we will stand. We will stand and we will give you the honor. We will give you the glory even in our deepest pain. We will show the world what a great God you are. Even in our deepest suffering, we will claim how beautiful you are, Lord. Well, there are many people suffering at the moment, even in our church, and I'm sure many people even watching this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would do the work of grace in their life. Show them, Lord, that you indeed are worthy, that you are the one who takes away all this pain, that you are the one who replaces that with joy. We pray, Lord, for the gospel today. May we treasure it more. May we love you more. May we hate our sin more. When suffering comes, Lord, we will be able to endure. We ask this prayer in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, please join me as we finish with our song of response this morning, The Wonderful Cross.